and welcome to the Weekly Skeptic episode 41. I'm Nick Dixon, here as ever with Mr. Toby Young in his very hot shed. And coming up, Boris is gone, Trump is indicted, and Sturgeon is arrested, plus loads more stories. And of course, peak woke. But Toby, I thought we'd have to start really with Boris. It's the big one, probably. I mean, Trump's pretty big as well. But he's gone, he's stepped down. Was it because of the potential suspension coming down the line? Was it because of this honors list thing where... He wanted people to get a, a life period or whatever it is. Well, no, not a life period. He wanted people to get into the House of Lords, and then they changed it. Sunak basically deleted them, as far as I know. Your name was on there. It was taken off. Uh, and It's all very confusing, but he's gone. Can you shed any light on this, Toby? Yeah, my, I, I, should, I should say to begin with that my name was not on the list, even on the... <laughs> <laughs> pre-redacted list my name wasn't on that list um so um well i think i think i think um the first question you answered sorry the first question you asked is easier to answer than the second so the first question why did boris stand down he stood down because he was anticipating that the privilege privileges committee uh is going to conclude that he misled parliament and the punishment likely to be meted out, it may even have been meted out by the time people are listening to this, but as of now, it hasn't been. But the the expectation is that the punishment will be a 20-day suspension from Parliament. Um, and had Boris remained an MP, that would have triggered the recall process. So his constituents, I believe this is how it works, uh, would have then um, been allowed to launch a petition to recall him as an MP. Uh, so he would have had to have fought a by-election if he wanted to uh, continue to represent the people of Uxbridge. Um, and uh, rather than be forced out in that way and have to fight a by-election that in all likelihood he would lose, he decided to step down. And he called the Privileges Committee a kangaroo court um, when he did so. And incidentally, that raises another interesting question. The Privileges Committee, I think, is now considering whether to hold Boris in contempt of Parliament for describing it as a kangaroo court. And one of the penalties, if they do hold him in contempt, um, is um, that uh, he wouldn't be able to ever stand as an MP again, which is a pretty severe penalty. And that would set a bad precedent because the government of the day always has a majority on the Privileges Committee. So at a future date, the government could decide it wanted the Privileges Committee to um, ban the leader of the opposition from being an MP and ever standing as an MP, which begins to feel like Putin's Russia. Um, and we don't want the government of the day to have that power. So if the Privileges Committee does decide that Boris has behaved so contemptuously that he should be banned from standing as an MP ever again, that would be a very unfortunate uh, precedent. So let's hope they don't do that. In answer to your second question, what happened to Boris's uh, resignation honours list? How did it get pruned? between seemingly him agreeing a deal with Rishi Sunak the Friday before last and the honours list being published last Friday. That is mysterious. And um, I've been talking to a fair few people about it and haven't got to the bottom of it. I think the likeliest explanation is that, um, the, the, that 
several of the names on Boris's original list, particularly his list of peers, were rejected by HOLAC, the House of Lords Committee, which has to approve honours lists. Um, And uh, HOLAC communicated this to Downing Street, and Downing Street didn't then communicate it to Boris. So when he agreed with Rishi Friday before last that Rishi would send the list that Holak had approved to the palace and wasn't going to take any names off it, he didn't disclose that actually that list had already been pruned by Holak and Boris was under the impression it was his original list that had been fully approved. So when the list was published, Boris thought, oh, Rishi's pulled a fast one. But then the trouble with that theory is, well, why would Rishi do that, knowing that it would upset Boris, set the cat amongst the pigeons? Boris would then say, I'm going to get Rishi, and it wouldn't be good for Rishi's re-election prospects. So maybe it's some, maybe Boris knew all along that Holak had rejected some of his nominees, uh, but only is now pretending that he was deceived by Rishi, because in fact, what really happened is he deceived the people on that list and didn't disclose to them that Holak had rejected them. Um, who knows? It's it, it's mysterious. Um, what will Boris do next? Um, it doesn't look like he can easily return to Parliament, certainly not as a Conservative MP, because in order to run as a Conservative candidate, that would need to be signed off by Conservative Party headquarters, and I think it would be unlikely to do that while Rishi remains in charge. So it doesn't look like Boris can get back into Parliament unless he wants to run as an independent, but he's unlikely to do that because he doesn't like to lose, and he'd be more likely to lose if he ran as an independent than as a Conservative, even in a safe Conservative seat. So he's not going to come back into Parliament, I don't think, before the next general election. What's he going to do? Well, it's possible that one of the consortia bidding for the Telegraph Media Group, which as you probably know, has gone into receivership since we recorded our last podcast. Um, one of the consortia bidding for it may well have Boris lined up to become the editor-in-chief or at least the editor of the Daily Telegraph. Um, so perhaps he is um, hoping that you know his return to public life will be as the editor-in-chief of the Telegraph newspapers. Um, but the fly in the ointment of that theory is, well, if that was happening, wouldn't Rishi know about it? And if Rishi knew about it, then he wouldn't have knifed Boris in the way he did, you know, but maybe it was all a misunderstanding and he didn't knife him. Boris just pretended he'd knifed him, blah, blah, blah. So who knows? It's pretty opaque and quite mysterious, but I imagine uh, it'll all it'll all come out in the wash in due course. Okay. That's pretty comprehensive. One thing you, you didn't mention, and this involves your colleague, the spectator, I suppose, so it might be tricky to comment on, but Isabel Oakeshott said that Boris believes Sunak's best friend and political secretary, James Forsyth, secretly removed five names from his honours nomination list before it was submitted to the honours committee. This broke a long-standing convention that sitting PMs don't meddle with their predecessors' honours list. Boris allies claimed number 10 lied and lied about what they did. That is emphatically denied by Downing Street and James Forsyth today. But the suspicion, right or wrong, is what triggered Friday night's resignations. And I suppose that's Nadine Doris and Nigel Adams. So, yeah, Mishi made this big thing about he didn't think it was right the way it was done, but Boris was saying the way he did it was completely standard. So I'm not sure. Any further comment on that, Toby? Yeah, well, that's interesting. I didn't know that Isabel Oakeshott had speculated about James Forsyth um, removing some of the names from Boris's resignation on his list before it was sent to Holak. Um, That's interesting. And I can ask her 
about that this evening because we're doing our second ever and last performance of the Lockdown Files Live. We did our first one on Saturday at Unheard, and we're doing our our last one tonight at the Hippodrome. I, I fear by the time people listen to this, it'll already already have happened. They won't be able to buy tickets. But um, uh, we are talking about doing another weekly Skeptics Live. So hopefully next week or the week after, we'll have some news about that. Yeah, you just did this pointless plug there, Toby. <laughs> this will come out. The event will be happening or over. So, but That's still, true. good to get it in there. Um, yeah, look out for another weekly Skeptic Live. Well. So there's lots of procedural side of it, but to me, the more interesting side of it is what will he do? And Farage has been talking about a potential alliance. Now, of course, you might say that's unlikely because Boris apparently didn't even want to appear on a platform with, with Farage in the Vote Leave campaign at a crucial moment. But Farage is very much open to it. He's been on GB News. He's talked about there's a very big opening in British politics and the gap between Westminster and the country is much bigger than 10 years ago. And it was pretty big then. And he said... Would there be a possibility of a new coming together on the centre-right? He talked about reform, which has its base has a base and a structure, but he said, maybe if the Brexit battle is going to be refought, we'll go back to the old name of the Brexit party. If the Brexit battle has to be refought, that's what we'll do, obviously. So he's saying very openly, his plan is, if Boris is up for it, and he says he's spoken to people close to Boris, but not Boris, his plan would be, go back to the Brexit party with Boris and Farage and a few other big names because he says to break the first past the post system, to break the mould, we're going to need a number of serious household names. What do you think to this, Toby? Yeah, I think um, I, I, I think uh, Nigel is, um, you know, running that idea up the flagpole. I don't think that um, he'll have actually worked anything out with Boris or people close to Boris along those lines. And it's difficult to see exactly what what shape that 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 would take. I mean, the Brexit party made a great deal of sense when it was possible to contest um, European Parliament seats um, because uh, the, the, those seats were elected on a kind of PR-like basis. But in a first-past-the-post system, um, it's it's unlikely that a Brexit party could mount a serious challenge to the Conservative Party, particularly now most people think that Boris got Brexit done. It'd be quite odd for Boris to run on a kind of let's get Brexit done ticket when his main achievement that he likes to point to of his, you know, three-year administration is he got Brexit done. So I'm not quite sure how that would work. I also can't see, you know, him and Farage working particularly well together. I mean, you know, it would be like, you know, two big boys playing in the same sandbox and you know it would be bound to end in fisticuffs i imagine yeah it'd be like me and you running together toby just two massive personalities <laughs> too much charisma competing <laughs> they yeah. are two who's massive charisma politicians yeah yeah who'd be the it's like when i when i when i when i when i had dinner with candace owens and asked her if it was true that rumor has it you've already discussed with kanye becoming his vice presidential running mate and making a bid for the presidential for the presidency in 2024 and she said no no he's going to be my vice presidential running mate i'm going to be the presidential candidate so that was quite funny but i imagine there'd be similar sort of arguments between boris and uh, farage yes um well, we'll get on to american politics in a sec yeah the only thing about farage i'm working on my Farage impression, by the way. I can't quite do the voice yet, but I have got the cadence. All you've got to do is, a lot of people say, Nigel, what you're going to do is talk slowly at the end and then go loud. <laughs> that's, that's how he's done <laughs> almost bad. everything. That's pretty good, yeah. He's presenting genius, and that's what you have to yeah. do. A lot of people say, Nigel, and then you just go, 
and do a strange laugh in the middle of it randomly. <laughs> so a lot of people say. Um, so it would be very exciting. But yeah, I'm not sure if it's going to happen. And Farage points out that Labour will win anyway, so he doesn't see that as an obstacle to it. But we need to do something because, yeah. as he says, the 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 wets have re- have taken over the party again. They've really you know put down the sort of Brexit rebellion. We've got Sunak. It's all very globalist. And what's the point of that? What's the point of this lefty social democrat Tory party? It, it has left a massive, massive gap for someone to move into. But yeah, a vacuum on the right. But um, while we while we still have first past the post, it's. Um, not clear how a Farage-led popular front could significantly challenge the Conservative Party. Yeah, fair enough. Well, let's um, move you, on. Well, sorry, one last consideration, I suppose, mm-hmm. is that suppose Labour is the largest single party after the next general election, has to enter into a coalition with the Lib Dems, Lib Dems make PR the price of entering into a coalition, PR gets passed, then it might th- things might get interesting because then you could have a party challenging the conservatives on the right of British politics and, you know, could actually make some headway. And I think at that point, you can see Farage re-entering politics and possibly making alliances with some disillusioned Tory MPs, maybe even Boris. Yeah, could be very interesting. Um, Sorry, it's hard for me to tell when you finished talking to her because you've gone to just your videos turned off because Toby, just for the listener, is in a, a shed that's currently melting and uh, it's, his internet cables are melting because it's 30 degrees in London. And uh, Toby just in his shed going mad. He's like Colonel Kurtz in a in a <laughs> apocalypse now. Um, so let's move on then and do Trump because this this is you know comparable in some ways. I tweeted hard not to draw a comparison between Trump and Boris, our much watered down version of a blonde anti-establishment establishment maverick. They are both being forced out on dodgy charges because they are a threat to the swamp slash blob. That was my take. And I also asked a big question, what does 74 million people do when their president is thrown in jail by a corrupt leftist authoritarian government? So I was on the fence as usual, but I think it's a big question. But let's just go over the charges first. I mean, he's the first pre- former president to face federal charges. It's 34 separate felonies. And a very interesting question is whether he could go to prison. And if he did go to prison, could he pardon himself if he then won in 2024? And you can imagine they'll do absolutely everything to stop that happening. So... No one knows if he could actually do that. The Constitution says a president can grant pardons except in cases of impeachment. So it's a grey area. So people think it would probably go to the Supreme Court, which, of course, has a conservative majority and would surely pardon him. DeSantis was also open to pardoning him in theory. He said he kept it kind of vague, but he said the DOJ and FBI have been weaponized. Any example of disfavored treatment based on politics or weaponization would be included in that review, no matter how small or big. So he would... He would review everything. That's basically saying he would do it as far as I can see. Uh, but Toby, I mean, look, Trump did some silly things in what I've seen. he There's a part where he's speaking to a staffer and he's sort of saying, oh, yeah, this isn't declassified yet. This is secret. But he's showing him anyway and goes, oh, I should have declassified that. You know, there's some sloppy stuff. But overall, you know, we know Clinton had files, Hillary, Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton. You know, Clinton had some nuclear stuff at his house or something like that. I need to check the details. Hillary Clinton with the emails. Biden, I'm sure, has had some files. I, is it, a, is it something he's really done that's terrible or is it just a, they're just trying to take him out at, at all costs? Yes, well, yeah, I initially um, bought into Trump and Trump supporters' spin, which is that this is, you know, another attempt by the deep state to um, block Trump's re-election campaign or campaign 
to get elected. Um, and, and this kind of brings the um, whole system, it, it jeopardizes the reputation, the standing, the public trust in the entire federal judicial system because it's clearly a political prosecution. But if you look at the charge sheet, it does seem as though he may have done, you know, he may have committed some federal crimes. Other public officials like General Petraeus have been convicted. I mean, he, he pleaded guilty um, of very similar crimes. Um, uh, it feels as though Trump just behaved quite carelessly with, you know, his, his fairly typical disregard for the rules, for the law. Um, and this isn't an, it may well be that uh, there is, there is, you know, some political motivation, you know, behind the indictment of Trump. Um, but the fact is, he's, he's presented them with an open goal. Um, and uh, so I, I kind of think, uh, I mean, what, what impact will it have on his presidential bid? I mean, it may make it very difficult for him to continue to run. And it's hard to see it as anything other than helping DeSantis, particularly if DeSantis hints that he will pardon Trump in the event of winning the presidential election. Um, so, yeah, I think it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it feels to me as though Trump has been holed below the waterline. And even though he's certainly not going to go quietly and it'll be a long and torturous demise, I cannot now see him um, uh, being the Republican nominee. Uh, he may run as an independent, um, but even that may be, may be difficult. Um, uh, so yeah, it's, 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 it's hard to predict with any certainty what's likely to happen, um, just as it is in Boris's case. But it feels to me that for all the noise they're making and for all their efforts to rally their base and for all their campaigning chops, that um, both are now finished as serious political figures and are no longer going to have an impact on politics as elected politicians. Wow. Well, I think that's uh, completely wrong. I, I think Trump will still be the Rep Republican nominee and uh, hopefully he comes through wins and then pardons himself, which the tricky part with that is uh, there'd have to be a fair election, then he'd have to win it. Um, so I don't know if that's going to happen. But the idea when you say, with respect to me, when you say there may well be some political motivation, I mean, that's a ludicrous statement, of course, <laughs> political motivation. I mean, they've been throwing everything at Trump since day one. Russia hoaxes, failed impeachment. Of course, it's massive political motivation. There's still a question of, yeah, did he do silly stuff? Is Trump careless and sloppy? I'm sure he is with paperwork, absolutely. But of course, it's entirely politically motivated. Well, couldn't, I mean, if, if, if he, if he, if he committed these felonies and wasn't prosecuted for them, wouldn't that be equally politically suspect? You just suppose that, you know, a different side was in charge of um, federal prosecutions um, or the DOJ. Um, but um, I don't know. Um, uh, ideally, they'll also prosecute some prominent Democrats for, for, for similar crimes. Um, but it feels to me that there is really there is a he really has broken the law, um, and uh, does certainly have a case to answer. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, may, 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 yeah, of course, of course, there's a it's partly politically motivated, but um, you know he, he's he's been a very silly boy. Yeah, but that's the whole question. Would it happen to 
Biden. Has it happened to Hunter Biden? Maybe now they'll hit back and they'll go for Hunter Biden. But Hunter Biden seems to have got away with all the stuff he's done. Joe Biden's got away with everything. Hillary Clinton's got away with everything. So, of course, it's entirely one-sided. That's the whole problem. Yeah, you can say, well, Trump should be indicted for this, and then the, the left should as well. But they won't be necessarily because they run things. Maybe they will. Let's have a look. But that's the whole point, isn't it? It's, it is, it's a one-sided political system run by the weaponized deep state. That's the whole well, thing. But, who are on but the, the um, Yeah, but, I mean, it, it's contrary to – I mean, the conspiracy theory I bought into is that um, – uh, Actually, um, the reason the first indictment uh, brought against Trump, um, the reason for that is, yes, that was politically motivated because that was based on a very creative interpretation of a federal law. It was brought by a fairly minor, obviously politically ambitious Manhattan what attorney general uh, and looked likely to fail. So it felt to me that that was politically motivated because um, knowing it would fail, they knew in advance that it would only strengthen Trump's candidacy. And the reason they wanted to strengthen Trump's candidacy is because Biden wants to run against Trump and not against um, uh, DeSantis. Uh, I've always, you know, as you know, I'm, I, I've always thought that DeSantis would be uh, the stronger of the two candidates and more likely to beat Biden. Um, so I sort of bought into that conspiracy theory that the reason they've gone after DeSantis so hard, the reason all these woke NGOs and not-for-profits have attacked DeSantis on completely trumped up charges. Um, I don't mean federal charges, I mean, you know, moral charges. Um, it's because they fear DeSantis more than they do Trump. Uh, so I'm not going to now switch and subscribe to your conspiracy theory, which is that this is a conspiracy to stop Trump getting the Republican nomination because Biden is mortally fearful of running against Trump. I think he would still prefer to run against Trump than run against DeSantis. So um, I suspect that um, the reason for this second indictment is because Trump has just flagrantly broken the law and the you know, Department of Justice cannot turn a blind eye to it for fear of being accused of being politically motivated. He's no. a he's a wrong one. <laughs> Completely mad. I mean, that, I don't buy into any of the 4D chess theories. So I don't, it's not a conspiracy theory. Yeah, I thought when it, the other guy, Alvin, whatever, attacked Trump and went for him, it was just purely he wants to attack Trump and get him, which he'd already stated in his campaign. And now I think this is another attempt to get Trump. I don't think they, these people hate Trump so much. It's not like 4D chess so we can get this uh, DeSantis. Oh, no, so we, so we get rid of DeSantis, so they, Trump runs. They just hate Trump. They see Trump as a massive threat. He is a bigger threat than DeSantis because of his massive fame and popularity and, and, and charisma. And, and, and they want to get rid of him at all costs. I just see it as that simple. The only part, you, if you want to call it a conspiracy, is that I think the Biden administration is essentially the end of America. I think the election was dodgy, and I think everything they do is just deep state dodginess, they're just authoritarians. Look at their COVID behavior. And I, I just think it's just not an American president in any way we've ever seen. I think that they're just radicals who despise the country and are just basically trying to destroy everything. That, that's my only conspiracy. But you seem to still think there's some sort of fair play going on, which to me is absolutely ludicrous. To me, it's just pure corruption, pure political motivation. And I don't believe the 4D chess. I think Trump is still a massive threat to them. And they want to take him out. And if, if you know anyone with Trump derangement well, syndrome... You know, they it just can't, constantly talk yeah. about Trump ending up in prison. They're obsessed with it. That, that's as may be, but it, it can't be pure corruption. It can't just be, you know, a Putin-like weaponization of 
you know, um, uh, the criminal justice system in order to prosecute uh, political enemies, because that would suggest that that they that these are trumped up charges and that Trump isn't guilty of any of them. Um, evidence has been planted by the corrupt authorities in order to try and put him in jail because he's a feared political opponent. That surely is a stretch. We don't. I mean, even you, I would be. I, I expect would would be prepared to acknowledge that Trump probably has committed these crimes. No, you, yeah, you'd be, that's not my claim. You misunderstood my claim, which is that everyone does. You know, Bill Clinton had these nuclear codes he wasn't supposed to have, and there was some dodgy thing where some guy had to. I need to check it, but some guy had them in his pants. I had to like take them and stuff them in his trousers. I need to check that story again. But Hillary Clinton had the famous email, and she destroyed the emails and all that. I just think every president does something like this, and it's just a question of which you choose to shine a light on it and actually and actually prosecute. That's the corrupt element. You could. Josh was trying this with me on on headliners, sort of like, well, he's, he's broken the law. That's it. It's like as if it's that simple. He was doing it with the initial, obviously dodgy case. I haven't spoken about this one, but that's disingenuous. Not, I don't know if it's disingenuous, but it's kind of like playing. It's sort of like playing dumb. Or I hope it's playing dumb. It's just saying, well, he's committed a crime. But life's not really like that now. As sort of Tate has remarked in the past, if they want to get you on something, they can find something. This is what we have now. You find the crime to fit the person. You, 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 you know, so any president you can do, as if Biden hasn't done things, as if Hunter Biden hasn't done things. We all know they have. So why are they fine? The corruption is they only shine a light on Trump and never on their own side. And by the way, it's the deep state. It's not really Democrats, Republicans, because... They're going to do what they can to keep RFK Jr. out of things as well. And actually, people compared the treatment of Trump to the treatment of, of uh, the original Kennedy, JFK, because he was obviously, we saw what happened to him because he threatened the establishment. I just think that the, the, if the deep state is threatened by someone, they do what they can to get rid of him. And it happens to be now they're Democrats. But in the past, you know, they were the kind of military industrial complex that Eisenhower spoke about. So I just think the deep state still runs things and they're just becoming increasingly bold. Yeah, I don't think you needed to throw in a conspiracy theory about the JFK assassination to bolster your case there. I thought you were doing quite well until that point. <laughs> well, with that, come on, Toby. Even, I mean, Tucker Carlson's been talking about that recently. That you don't want, you don't, you're not one of these, you don't think it was Oswald, do you, on the, the grassy night? If we're going to go there, I mean, no one thinks that, do they? Yeah, well, I think the, the, um, the evidence that it was Oswald and, it, and that Oswald wasn't part of a broader conspiracy um is i think pretty compelling um, <laughs> i didn't know anyone still believe I, that we uh, no, no, I think most, might uh, be the one uh, person toby <laughs> the one person in your bubble perhaps um but uh, no i think i i don't know um uh, i expect did, did you see there was a guardian story actually about the um percentage of the uk population that believe conspiracy theories now i was slightly suspicious of this poll um it said that uh 25% of the UK population think COVID was a hoax. And the poll was done, um, uh, it was, it was, I think it was a combination of King, it was done on behalf of King's College London and the BBC. And I suspect it's um, probably been done at the behest of the new BBC Verify unit. Nick basically uh, provides a rationale for the BBC to 
um, uh, clamp down on misinformation and disinformation and to sick Mariana Springs on various malefactors because they claim, look at this, look at the percentage of the population that believe this nonsense, thanks to the fact that we're not doing enough to suppress misinformation and disinformation. And this is really dangerous and could lead to political insurrection like January the 6th. Um, so I think it's all part of the case for spending more and more money on um, trying to suppress, you know, dissent. Um, but nonetheless, uh, uh, I expect you're probably right that um, I don't know about a majority of the US population believing that, you know, believing that JFK was assassinated by the deep state, but maybe I don't know, I haven't seen the polling, but I suspect it's less less than 50%. Well, and then his brother was killed. Then Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. They were all killed pretty quickly, weren't they? Was it were they all, all just what lone gunmen? I mean, very very dodgy. I mean, that was back in the day. Very hard to do that now with Twitter and stuff. That was back in the day when you could just uh, off someone. Anyway, um, should, should I quickly mention that Carl Benjamin thing? Since you mentioned Mariana Spring, because yeah, I was going to do it later, yeah. but it kind of fits in here. So it's interesting you mentioned that because Mariana Spring, you know, you got the BBC verify. We talked about it before. This ludicrous new body that wants to stop disinformation but they are now purveying disinformation so in her podcast she made a series of false claims about carl benjamin and he's tweeted and it's, it's got thousands of likes i'm disappointed to learn that mariana spring is actively promoting disinformation about me on her podcast and he gives a, a timestamp. here is a list of the demonstrable lies she said about me one my youtube channel is not suspended you can view it here with a link number two milo yiannopoulos was not with me in totness three i've never sent a rape threat Four, I am not, nor have I ever been a white supremacist, and my only engagement with them is to debate against them. He famously had a, a big thing where he debated against them. Number five, I have not returned to Totnes since my one and only visit. Six, as I did not have a return visit to Totnes, half the town did not turn out to support me because they had been radicalized. It's actually quite shocking just how extreme Ma Marina's disinformation is. He calls her Marina there. It's Mariana, isn't it? Disinformation is... These are completely fabricated statements which have no ground in reality. One might think that the BBC would be more concerned about honesty. I've placed a complaint with both the BBC and Ofcom. So what we learn once again, and you don't have to like Carl, but you do have to get some of your facts right. And, and we learn once again, this is a, a propaganda unit. I mean, the BBC are just making it so obvious and, and ridiculous at this point. Nick Robinson had this thing. He came out and said, oh, well, I'm worried about the impartiality with so with partisan news channels like GB News. And it's like, come on, Nick, no one thinks the BBC is impartial. And this just shows it once again. It's a propaganda unit. What do you think, Toby? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, uh, w I reprinted or reproduced um, Carl's uh, series of tweets about this um, uh, on the Daily Skeptic in the roundup last night. Um, yeah, it is pretty shocking that... Um, you know, the face of a new BBC unit, the purpose of which is to try and restore trust in the BBC by exposing um, conspiracy theories, misinformation and disinformation on, you know, rival alt media sources, such as the Lotus Eaters, um, for her to get so many things wrong, seemingly, in her report about Carl and about She's obsessed with Totnes. I don't know if you saw, but um, uh, there was a st she did a story about Totnes. It was like Totnes is ground zero for kind of uh, the febrile political activity prompted by conspiracy theories and 
irresponsible trafficking in inf- misinformation and, and and disinformation. And, and the, but the, but you know, I've, I I used to live very close to Totnes. I spent three years of my teenage life hanging out in Totnes, um, and uh, it's full of stoned hippies. The idea that there's going to be a January the sixth like political insurrection in Totnes is just it couldn't be more far-fetched and the only thing she could come up with I think in this in this uh, in this um, story she's just done for BBC sounds in which she tries to to blame Carl and others for you know um, Totnes being on the edge of an outbreak of serious political violence is apparently that the, the former mayor um, received uh, was was shouted at on the street uh, on one occasion or something. It's just kind of like it's just so threadbare. There's just nothing to it at all. But I agree. It's like it's a pretty poor start uh, for what is supposed to be the BBC's kind of multi-million pound, you know, 60 staff kind of new unit, which is going to restore trust in the BBC for her to get so many basic facts wrong. Yeah. And George Monbiot is very much bought into it. He says a brilliant series by Mariana Spring centered on my hometown, which shows how and why many alternative types, wellness practitioners and well-meaning hippies get sucked into far-right conspiracy theories. Must listen. Yeah. Those wellness (laughs) practitioners, that's who we've got to look out for. And then Carl said, Guardian columnist George Monbiot has completely bought into the radicalization narrative that Mariana asserted, presumably as a consequence of the phantom second visit to Totnes that I did not undertake. I mean, that's an easy one to check, isn't it? You can say the rape threat thing is clearly just a smear. They're talking about he made a joke, uh, an off-collar joke about Jess Phillips, which is well documented. But you can, if you really want to call that a rape threat, I mean, it's completely uh, a distortion, but you can see what they're doing there. Whereas the, whereas the Totnes thing, it's just completely fabricated. Yeah, and um, you know, Part of kind of um, the rationale for investigating um, what publications like what is it? What is it called? That publication that she's absolutely obsessed with is it called the Stand or the Shout or something? The Spire. It's like this this publication that's given away in kind of towns at railway stations and the rest of it. Anyway, part of the rationale for investigating these kind of alt media. (laughs) <laughs> these alt media publications is that they, you know, is that misinformation spread by these publications can cause civil disorder. Um, uh, and, you know, QAnon caused the January 6th insurrection. She's got this other example of the attempted coup in Germany, which was a few right wing nutcases meeting in the back room of a bar somewhere. Um, but, um, uh, but, but if that's your rationale for investigating misinformation, then why not investigate the misinformation spread in The Guardian by journalists like George Monbiot, who for years have been claiming that um, opposition to environmental hysteria is funded by big oil that's what that 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 directly led to um 55 tufton street um the home of you know the global warming policy foundation being vandalized by just stop oil and extinction rebellion protesters um it's led to a huge amount of civil disorder i mean if you want if you if you, if you want to trace a line between a publication that publishes conspiracy theories which in turn lead to public disorder the line is clear george monbiot in the guardian publishes misinformation which leads to civil unrest mariana there's your next topic but no she's never going to go near that <laughs> yeah and the, the fact that your that monbiot loves it so much is, is such a red flag because he's so insanely far left and he's like anti farms at this point. You know, he's anti- his positions are absolutely deranged. So this is, this is where the BBC are just going so incredibly wrong. If they made a sort of 10% effort, you know, to be 10% more impartial, 
probably people would give them the benefit of the doubt because they're such a, an established and formally loved institution. They just have to do so little. But the, to have this basically radical left disinformation unit, it's so insane. It, it's just so disappointing. I mean, I wish they were impartial. You know what I mean? I wish they were trying harder. It, why are they doing it? I mean, do, do, you ever, do, do you have an answer to that, Toby? Why they? Why? So I feel like Alan Partridge. Why are you doing this? But why? Why is she doing it? Well, you know, I, I well, I, I don't know if we discussed this, but um, it's 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 part of a cluster of initiatives um, the BBC is taking to try and supposedly restore trust in the BBC. So I think the BBC uh, is worried about hemorrhaging viewers, hemorrhaging listeners, particularly amongst younger demographics. And their their diagnosis um, is that it's because people are losing trust in the BBC as a respected news source. Um, and and that, that there's probably a lot in that. You know, they're flocking to sites like the Daily Skeptic. But the way to restore trust is not to, um, you know, actively try and suppress misinformation and disinformation by which you mean unorthodox opinions that I, as a member of the liberal metropolitan left, disapprove of. It's precisely the BBC's one-sided coverage of issues like climate change, lockdowns, vaccine harms, the war in Ukraine. It's precisely the one-sidedness of the BBC's coverage of those issues that has led to the lack of trust and continuing to demonise and smear people who present another point of view is not going to win back trust from those people that are deserting your platforms for other platforms that they regard as more trustworthy precisely because they challenge the kind of prevailing orthodoxy amongst the kind of liberal metropolitan left. So it's a completely misguided attempt, I think, to try and do something about the declining eyeballs and ears that um, the BBC is attracting. Yeah, exactly. We did a piece last night, a story which I don't have in front of me, but it was about the, Tim Davey wants to get a, a diverse range of views at the BBC and try and change the hiring policy. I don't know why it's so hard, but but it, but but I wonder if a lot of the people are already there with diverse views. This is something I've heard, but they just can't express them. There are people at the BBC; everyone knows their views, but it's not the sort of official BBC view. They might be, you know, pro Farage or something, but they can't really openly be, or not in any sort of way that impacts anything. So that's one thing. But yeah, they need to, Tim Davey comes up with sensible things. They don't really seem to happen. But yeah, getting people with a more diverse range of views. But yeah, but, but, and they need to appeal to working class people. They've realized it said in the article as well. But I don't know if they're actually going to do it. I do know people at the BBC because I'm here in London and I meet them and I have uh, friends of friends and so on. And one of them, you know, was very open to GB News and he, he was very positive about it. And he, he was someone who I believe would genuinely seek other views and do it as, he would definitely has a strong classic metro liberal bias, but he would try to look outside of it and actually listen to someone like me. Whereas I know other people, and a lot of them are in my football team and stuff, but who would who would would struggle to do that, who are just much more zealous. And they seem to be winning at the BBC. I mean, it's such a it's fascinating, isn't it? They need to do exactly what you say, which is listen to the basically the the so-called right or the countercultural viewpoint, but they just can't because of who they are, because they're so entrenched in their viewpoint. They can't break yeah, out. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it's. Yeah, I think it's. It's partly that it's partly groupthink and staying very much within the metropolitan bubble and regarding anyone who expresses a dissenting point of view as being a kind of completely beyond the pale because they hear those 
alternative points of view so infrequently. But I also think the 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 energetic attempt to suppress you know, any alternative points of view under the guise of protecting the public from misinformation and disinformation and dangerous conspiracy theories. I think that that that's that that's prompted in part by a kind of what um, Jacob Matcham Garma, who wrote a very good book on the history of free speech last year, which I reviewed for The Spectator, he calls it elite panic. And um, there is this kind of, you know, as partly as a result of the populist revolts with Leave winning the e referendum, Trump being elected president in 2016, the elite panicked. They thought to themselves, "Crikey, you know, um, the electorates aren't doing what we've encouraged them to do. They aren't following our advice. They're going their own way. They're revolting. Um, they're embracing what we gro- we regard as these kind of crackpot causes, such as leaving the EU, electing Trump." Um, we've clearly lost the argument or we're losing the argument in the public square. Um, people aren't listening to us anymore. They don't trust us anymore. The age of the experts is over. What can we do to address this crisis of legitimacy? Um, uh, because we want to stay in charge. Well, instead of trying to win the argument, instead of you know entering the fray and debating in the public square, they've decided to go in another direction and just try and suppress anyone expressing an alternative point of view, smear them as conspiracy theorists or or people who engage in hate speech or whatever it is. Um, uh, it, it, it's a kind of panic, a panic amongst the kind of uh, intellectual cognitive elite. Uh, but it seems, one of the reasons I say that is because it seems so patently irrational. I mean, you know, Mariana Springs um, smearing Carl as, you know, um, uh, someone who makes rape threats and who's kind of tried to um, uh, uh, ferment political insurrection in the town of Totnes. Um, That's not going to persuade anyone in Totnes who's, you know, become a 5G conspiracy theorist that um it's all nonsense and they should trust the bbc i mean it's the it's going to have the opposite effect i mean it's so plainly irrational and self-defeating why on earth could they have embraced this strategy it can only be because they're panicking and therefore behaving irrationally yeah and 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 the problem for them for them is that carl has three young children he's a family man runs a successful business incredibly smart his tweets now are sort of very considered and and clever and okay he's, he's said some you know, uh, edgy things in the past as part of his online sort of persona, which is which is a sort of popular thing to do on the internet. But yeah, it doesn't really fool anyone. And I think elite panic is the is the right phrase. And it reminds me of a, a Bill Gates video when he. I wish I, I need to look this up, but it, it, it's a real video, and it's Bill Gates just saying, admitting that nationalism is a threat to globalism, which is sort of his movement or the one he supports. And he's he's just openly saying. This is something we didn't expect, and this is something we need to get a handle on. So they're terrified of it, and we see it in the language of Trudeau, the disgusting rhetoric about the truckers. We see it in the disgusting rhetoric of Biden calling MAGA people semi-fascist, and we see it with all these leaders. Sunak's a bit more circumspect, but he's you think you think he should because he's a conservative, so he's not really conservative, but he doesn't go quite as far with the sort of mad globalist rhetoric. But yeah, it's the elite panic. I think that's absolutely right, and they just keep doubling down on it, but it, it doesn't work, does it? Well. It, it, it certainly doesn't work um, 
if their object is to restore trust in legacy media brands like CNN and the BBC. Um, but it's quite effective at kind of making life quite difficult um, for people in the alt media. Um, you know, it's quite difficult to get advertising. Um, uh, it's quite difficult to attract eyeballs if you're banned or shadow banned on YouTube or Facebook. Um, I just received a notification yesterday from Facebook that my my main Facebook page is at risk of removal because I've supposedly violated Facebook's community standards so often, by which they mean, um, you know, writing stories about vaccine harms and um, the ineffectiveness of the lockdown policy. Um, yeah, it's, it's, so, you know, I don't think it's going to achieve their objective uh, when it comes to restoring trust, but if 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 they're, if 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 they're going to kind of you know revert to a more authoritarian objective of just suppressing dissent, uh, given the amount of money that that are poured that's poured into the kind of you know censorship industrial complex, and given how technologically, given that they ha now have the kind of technological capacity to suppress you know, wrong think on a kind of industrial scale, then the authoritarian objective, which is just straightforwardly suppressing dissent, that, 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 may, be, that may be achievable for them. Yeah, you're right. Of course. I mean, of course, you're right. I was, I was sort of taking them at face value just for the purposes of that segment. But yeah, the restored trust thing is basically nonsense. And if their goal is just to crush dissent and crush morale, then of course, they're going about it perfectly the right way. But they have to pretend that's not what they're doing. And as you say, they can just suspend you now. I'm just looking for this Candace Owens statement because she got suspended from YouTube, as did Michael Knowles. And, of course, they don't give a proper reason and so, so on and so forth. And I'm just looking for a statement. I can't find it, but I listened to it, where she said, it, I think she called it the big globalist lie. And what was really interesting about that was, it's something we probably we have talked about before, but it's that you, you have to go along with their big lies. And they, they change and update. So she, she pointed out something. She said BLM was the big lie back in 2020 we all had to go along with. And you had to post the black square. And I'd forgotten about the black square. Obviously, I didn't post the black square. But I know people who did post it. And people who I know hate all that nonsense. They hate the woke nonsense. They, they don't rate BLM, obviously. But they posted the black square anyway out of fear. This is when George Floyd died and you had to post the black square. And I lost respect for those people forever. If you actually believe it, okay, you're stupid or evil, and I probably don't know you anyway, but I had friends in comedy, for example, who would post the black square just feeling that they should. And then I'm like, well, that's pathetic because I know for a fact you're against all this stuff. So she pointed out the black square thing. But of course, the big lie then was also uh, was also the COVID narrative itself. The lab leak theory we all had to believe, say wasn't possible until we were allowed to. Now she's saying the big lie is gender ideology, which we have to go along with. And that's why she's been suspended from YouTube, and uh, I, I just think that's very interesting. This They have a, a narrative that you have to adhere to at that particular time, and for some reason then it moves on, and then you're sort of allowed to talk about it again, and, and you're allowed to say it probably was the virus lab that released the virus. Maybe that's a yeah. question of resources. Maybe that's a question of they just deal with the threat, but it's this temporal quality. You, you have to go along with the particular lie of the moment, and it's always a lie. It's always the opposite. It's always the opposite. A good guide, actually, is just if you just go with the opposite of what they say, you'll probably be right. Like, like I was surprised that Peter Boghossian actually believed in the, the Trump-Russia hoax for a time, whereas to me, it's like, of course, that's a hoax. So 
you know, just think about it. The COVID lab leak, the idea the vaccines were the savior or didn't have any flaws, the Trump-Russia hoax, January 6th was this awful thing. And, and we know that was massively overplayed now. And I knew it at the time. Anyway, Jussie Smollett, you know, you can go along with any example you want. You have to believe in it for the time that you have to believe in it. It's kind of strange. I mean, maybe that's how propaganda always works. But what do you think about that? So do you have any comment on that? Yeah, well, the irony is that often the um, orthodox point of view that um, you're expected to adhere to and punished if you don't is rooted in a conspiracy theory. So BLM, for instance, that was rooted in the idea that um, American institutions, um, particularly the criminal justice system, um, were riddled with white supremacists. Um, uh, and that the police were essentially a kind of armed militia um, doing the bidding of white supremacists, which is why they were setting out deliberately to murder young black men. Um, uh, this idea that American institutions absolutely riddled from top to bottom with the kind of uh, with racism um, and that racism was everywhere. Um, that's a conspiracy theory. Um, and yet you are expected to believe it, you know, including the black square on your Instagram account was a way of signaling that you believed in that conspiracy theory. Um, uh, and it's the same with, you know, to a slightly lesser extent with um, uh, transgenderism. Um, so, you know, the great objection to Kathleen Stock being made by the protesters outside the Oxford Union debating chamber was, if we allow her to speak, um, uh, trans trans adolescents will die because she 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 she, she is um, making by 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 challenging the idea um, that someone can be born in the wrong body that it's possible to change sex that actually it's beneficial for some people to change sex by maintaining that sex is binary and immutable and adolescents presenting with gender dysphoria probably require psychotherapy and not irreversible medical procedures. By promoting those ideas, she's going to cause the deaths of trans adolescents who are suffering enough as it is. If you don't take them seriously, if you challenge their self-diagnosis, if you don't immediately give them puberty blockers and chop their boobs off, then they're going to commit suicide. I mean, it's a conspiracy theory. There's no, there's no evidential basis for it at all. Um, uh, 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 and, and, but it's a conspiracy theory now that unless you believe in, you risk being cancelled. I mean, she wasn't, but only because some brave people stood up, took a chance and defended her. Uh, but for the most part, you know, these conspiracy theories are effective at shutting down dissent from, you know, the trans rights activists agenda. Um, and seemingly that's what's happened to Candace. Yeah, I've just found her statement as well. It's a bit long, but she's, she talks about, it's true, my YouTube account has been suspended. And, and here's what I have to say. We don't know exactly who, what or who is the driving force behind globally sanctioned lies. What we do know is that over the past five years, the prevailing lies of the day have shifted dramatically. It was Black Lives Matter in 2020 when corporations, governments, and Hollywood were in lockstep flying black fist flags and encouraging people to donate their money as penance for the sin of being born white. Then the lies switched rather dramatically to COVID. People were encouraged to mask up, avoid their family members, roll up their sleeves and submit to a safe and effective vaccine, in quotes, of course, via a globally sponsored lie that it would protect them from getting a virus. Of course, both these tremendous lies fell apart with time. And she goes on a bit there and says, today, the new and perhaps most insidious globally agreed upon lies that individuals can choose or magically switch their genders. 
Why is this lie the most insidious? Often, other than its frightful illumination of Western idiocy, it's the most insidious because it targets children specifically. So yeah, and she goes on. So it's so interesting, isn't it? They, they, it's always the opposite of the truth. And it's always some absolute nonsense, you know, you know, trans youth or whatever, they're non-binary people, whatever it is. We we have to go along with it. it yeah, it's it, yeah. Like I mean, say, I based on conspiracies. Gone. Yeah, and uh, one maybe maybe one of the reasons um, the progressive left are so keen on identifying misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories being promoted by their political opponents is it's a form of projection. That's how they roll, and so they just assume the other side is rolling in the same way. Yeah, I mean, that's assuming that the question is, we don't know how much they believe this stuff. And she says, we don't know exactly what or who is the driving force. I mean, it could just be the 1% elites trying to keep the public distracted, the kind of classic divide and conquer is kind of a cliche, really. But that that could be what it is. I mean, why? I mean, who's behind it and why? I mean, we talk about this all the time, but it's such a perverse thing to do to just, or do they just believe? I mean, some of them are just true believers, aren't we? I talked about this with Lord Frost on the current thing, my other podcast. And some of them are just true believers. But, in wokeness but a lot of them are just it's expedient to pretend to go along with it and i suppose this yeah, question of yeah, where it comes uh, from is yeah. the big question gone yeah i mean I, my my i mean my view is it's not a hard and fast distinction so you're not having to choose between are they just out and out hypocrites pretending to believe things that are patently untrue in order to discredit their opponents and promote their cause or do they actually believe them? Are they completely 100% sincere? It's sort of a gray area in between those things, isn't it? Um, I think that um, they can easily bring themselves to believe whatever is in their, it, it's in their interest to believe at any particular moment. Because they're generally well-educated and, and clever and capable of mental gymnastics, they don't find it at all hard to kind of talk themselves into believing whatever's convenient for them and their careers and their political objectives, whatever it's convenient for them to believe. Um, but that doesn't mean it's not the same thing as saying they sincerely believe it. Um, uh, you know, um, it, the concept of sincerity appears to lose some of its value if you can talk yourself into believing anything that it's in your interest to believe. But I think we, le we shouldn't leave out the step that they do have to persuade themselves, you know, however easy that is, um, that what they're saying is true. I think it's very difficult for anyone to say something they know isn't true, to kind of to lie in the public square, on Twitter, wherever. I don't think they're consciously lying. I think, you know, that, 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 that human beings find it very, for the most part, not everyone, obviously, but I think uh, particularly people who consider themselves on the side of the angels, morally righteous, I think they, they find it difficult to kind of constantly lie. So I think it, it's much easier psychically to persuade themselves that what they're saying is true, but it's very easy for them to persuade themselves of that too easy maybe they persuade themselves of that eventually yeah but it sort of goes back to the george orwell thing later sort of referenced in star trek with picard you know whether when you get trying to get him to say there are four lights instead of five whatever it is it's it's the people doing it though are still who are they and are they trying to just break people if you can get people to say you know two plus two equals five whatever you, you you've sort of broken them and at first they say it maybe out of fear but then later they say it and begin to actually believe it but it doesn't really answer who's who's at the heart of it and why, but I suppose that's that's the pretty big question, and we're not, we're not going to be able to answer. But 
it just seems particularly, it's just so many things, reading that Candace statement and there's just so many things now we're just expected every day. I mean, this is why this podcast exists and the Daily Skeptic exists, but there's so many things we're expected to lie on for the sake of public life. And if you won't, you end up here with me and Toby, basically. Um, all right. Well, I think we've pretty much covered that. It was an interesting digression. It, but do you want to quickly get on to Sturgeon? We couldn't really leave this out, could we? So Nicola Sturgeon has been arrested. And of course, there's that funny picture of her in the police car that everyone's enjoying. And what it was, Toby, they dug up her garden, as you'll know, and they found dangerous quantities of hubris uh, that were toxic and <laughs> weren't allowed in this country. So that was one thing. The police questioned her for over seven hours, I believe. And, um, but she still hasn't resigned the SNP whip, despite, was it Michelle Thompson pointing out that in, in 2015, she had to resign the whip, even though she hadn't actually been charged with anything like this. And a, a taxi driver told me it's, it's all Salmon's revenge, Alex Salmon. What, what do you think is going on? Yeah, well, it's, um, I mean, the most striking thing about it is what an extraordinary fall from grace she's experienced. Um, I mean, until very recently, until she resigned, um, she was held up, you know, by the progressive left the world over as a kind of icon. You know, she was, a, she, she was this uh, wonderful, admirable progressive political leader she was a woman and she showed just how capable female political leaders were in contrast to male you know she'd done such a great job in the pandemic just like jacinda arden you know there was this kind of this narrative that that somehow she was part of this new wave of progressive female political leaders who were so much more moral and upright and competent compared to their sleazy male counterparts. It was time for men to just vacate the political stage in favor of more women like Nicola Sturgeon, the great Sturgeon. And, uh, you know, six months later, she's arrested and interrogated for seven hours uh, because the police are investigating the disappearance of, what, hundreds of thousands of pounds from internal party coffers within the SNP. I mean, the fall from grace has been so precipitous and so sudden. It really is um, quite something. Yeah, I've almost missed it a little bit because I've been off and I haven't been uh, following everything as much as usual. I mean, yeah, it's an extraordinary fall from grace. I didn't think it was possible. I just thought the SNP ran Scotland with such an iron fist that you didn't know this could actually happen. So it's amazing that it is actually happening. And I mean, she, well, she should have gone for the trans thing alone. But it, but it looks like she probably went more for the financial thing. I mean, what, what's going to? Surely she's finished in politics as well, or at least in the SNP. What do you think? Yeah, she's not coming back from this. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the question is, you know, to what extent can the SNP recover from this? Right. And Humza, who was, of course, you know, her designated successor, um, uh, it doesn't seem like you know he can bring himself to uh, kick her out of the party. Um, right. Still uh, terrified. Condemn her. Still terrified. Yeah. Uh, and um, and of course, it, it it helps the Labour Party, and it makes it it makes it more likely that Keir Starmer will win an overall majority next year because Labour will actually make quite a few gains in Scotland as the SNP sinks into the mire. Uh, but it, yeah, it is. I think it's a great kind of it's a great parable in a way of um, what goes wrong in one party states. You know, um, inevitably 
when there isn't any real political competition, when you when you extend your power into every sphere of civil society and everyone's terrified of you, you know, inevitably you cut corners, you engage in corruption, both petty and on a larger scale. I mean, that's seemingly what's happened here. Um, and uh, yeah, they thought they were untouchable, like Boris, above the rules. Um, but uh, yeah, it's 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 seemingly a kind of. Um, it, it, it's a sort of uh, it's a morality tale about um, it, it's, it, it, on a much it's a, it's a sort of it's a sort of pound shop version of, of what's happened to Putin, isn't it? You know, um, he's overreached. Hubris has led him to invade Ukraine. It looks like Russia are going to lose that conflict. He'll be deposed in you know a bloody coup. Probably end up being killed, um, uh, assassinated, um, you know, and it's another example of kind of the kind of overreach that happens when in, in these kind of one party states, when you have these kind of dictatorial figures with no one, no real competition, no one able to gainsay them, everyone terrified of them. Um, yeah. So yeah, she, she's the pound shop Putin. I think it's pretty harsh on Putin, to be honest, um, to compare him to Sturgeon. But also, I mean, the other comparison is with Boris and you look at the press coverage and the hysteria around Boris compared to Sturgeon. And Sturgeon, who's, you know, gardens being dug up and has, seems to have done questionable financial things or, I don't know, allegedly, whatever we have to say, um, maybe. But um, what she's, it looks like she may have done way worse things than Boris, but yet he's the one who's, you know, he, the hysteria around Boris is far greater. And I've yet to really understand exactly what Boris has done wrong. Misled Parliament, did he deliberately mislead? I mean, Boris hasn't done anything that I particularly care about in terms of, you know, Partygate wasn't great. But it was it was paled in comparison to the actual lockdown rules. Anyway, I just think it's interesting that he's treated so badly, whereas it looks like she's a lot more questionable. Yeah, yeah. Sorry to interrupt another excellent show, but we have a quick word from our sponsor, the Stack Assistant, and they say to preserve life savings from erosion by inflation, those who can buy gold, art, stocks, and bonds or property. Gold currently stores around $12 trillion, while stocks hold 10 times that, and bonds and property together, 5 times that. Along with cash and collectibles, all the world's wealth comes to around $900 trillion. But just like state money, there's no limit on how much gold can be found or faked, nor shares issued, loans made, or buildings built. An undebasable, fully liquid asset with no storage or maintenance fees, nor any default risk, will inevitably attract some of this stored wealth. The only question is how much? Some say all of it, but as skeptics, let's say just 1% for now. If so, that alone would swallow 9 trillion, making each Bitcoin worth half a million in today's dollars, around 20 times the current price. Intrigued? At the Stack Assistant, we offer free advice to help you stack your first sats, as the subunits of Bitcoin are called, and securing your stack into self-custody. So email us on thestackassistant at pm.me. That's the S-T-A-C-K assistant at pm.me. So this is an ad for the Live-In Care Company. Are you worried about parents or a loved one who are finding it more and more difficult to take care of themselves or who may be living with a condition such as dementia or Parkinson's? Are you starting to think about a residential care home, but the very thought doesn't sit right? At the Live-In Care Company, we truly believe that home is the best place to receive care from an expert carer of your choice and on a one-to-one basis. Home is always a calmer, more healthy, and a happier place to be. For more information about Live-In Care, 
please go to theliveincarecompany.co.uk. That's theliveincarecompany, all one word, .co.uk. Or you can ring us for a no-obligation conversation on 0118-914-5300. That's 018-914-5300. And we'll be happy to help. All right, now let's go over to Will with our top stories of the week. So I'm here with Dr. Will Jones, editor of The Daily Skeptic, and we have some very interesting stories. And I thought we'd start with this one. COVID-19 inquiry shows its hand by requiring COVID tests. What's going on, Will? Yeah, can you believe it, Nick? This is, of course, the COVID inquiry, the the Hallett inquiry that's been set up by the government, running already into estimated £114 million, but surely will end up far more than that. First hearings began today, so in a way this is the first day that it started. Already depressing listening. If any listeners have been uh, listening to the first day of the COVID inquiry hearings, then they are depressing listening, hearing all of that orthodox narrative being spouted as though it's as though it's just a plain fact. Um, And here we have the story uh, picked up by Julia Hartley Brewer that, can you believe it, the inquiry is requiring all staff and visitors, all participants who go along to it, to take a COVID test, a lateral flow test. Remember those? A lateral flow test uh, every week or every time they go in. Nobody can quite believe this. Carl Hennigan and uh, Tom Jefferson have written about it. Laura Dodsworth's written about it. Carl Hennigan, who's a participant, he's been called on to, to contribute to the inquiry, uh, says that it's, it's undermined his confidence in the inquiry, and rightly so. I mean, this is, as Hennigan and Jefferson point out, this basically means that the inquiry appears to be assuming, in just the very way that it's being run, that these tests, that they achieve something, that they accurately detect infectious COVID, unbelievably, it says that if you test positive, then you should not come in. So they're assuming that that is the right approach. So they're assuming that mass testing is good, that social distancing based on testing positive is good. They're making all these assumptions already just in the way they're set up. This is causing a lot of uh, sceptics, a lot of people to have their confidence in it undermined. How can it possibly be an unbiased inquiry that's looking at the evidence impartially if it's already making these assumptions? And uh, Laura Dodsworth, who's uh, written a piece that we've published on the site uh, today, also points out that you can see this bias uh, just in the questions that they've sent out. The l- a lamentable list of 150 questions put to Boris Johnson by uh, Baroness Hallett, as Laura puts it, including number 45, to what extent did the UK government have regard uh, during the period January to March 2020 to the response of other countries to COVID-19? Okay, that's you know, a reasonable start, you might think, but not when you read the rest. Did you consider taking more stringent measures in response to COVID-19, such as those seen in, for example, Taiwan, Singapore, New Zealand, zero code, of course, etc. What, if any, assumptions were made about how such measures would or would not work in the UK? So you can already see there that the assumption in these questions is that they should have done more, done done it quicker, that they should have locked down harder and faster. No questions so far about whether serious consideration was given to following Sweden's example and the example of places which did not just impose the most draconian uh, measures and saw, as we know, perfectly good, often better outcomes. So uh, lots of bias detected and a lot of sceptics very worried about where this is going. As Laura says, no inquiry would surely be better than this inquiry. 
They probably have those little arrows on the floor for which way you should walk around the inquiry. You know, those from like the supermarket. Exactly, exactly what um, Carl Hennigan and Tom Jefferson say in their post that we also published today. Why don't they do social distancing? Why don't they have screens erected between everybody? Why don't they have rule of six? You know, if they're just gonna if they're just gonna make assumptions about tests. Oh, and and Laura also points out that they. Uh, invite people to wear masks. They don't require it, but they have a whole section about how people can uh, should wear masks if they want to. I mean, yeah. you just don't get any sense that it's going to have any kind of sensible, impartial, rational critique of what happened over the last three years. Pathetic. And it doesn't have quite the same irony, but Biden recently had this college athlete day where they, they had mandatory masks and social distancing for unvaccinated guests. They actually brought back social distancing. You're like, what is going on? So yeah, insane this stuff is still happening, obviously with the particular irony of it being at the COVID inquiry. It's 2023 and they're still bringing social distancing. I know, it's insane. Should we do, speaking of insane things, do you want to do this one? Jacinda Arden awarded Damehood for a handling of the pandemic. Yeah, so talking of bias and talking of New Zealand and zero COVID uh, still being held in high esteem. Here we have New Zealand awarding a damehood to the, which is the second highest honour in the country, equivalent of course to being a sir if you're, and being a knighthood if you're a man, a damehood is uh, been awarded to the former Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern famous or infamous for imposing extraordinary zero COVID measures on New Zealand closing the borders tight for years even preventing New Zealand citizens from returning to their own country. So any citizens that were living abroad or, or stuck abroad, unable to return for years for any, any life events, weddings, funerals, to be with sick and dying loved ones, just locked tight. And of course, also imposed a two-tier vaccine passport system on her country as well. And she's been given this damehood for inevitably leading the country through the COVID pandemic. And this has been awarded to her by her new Prime Minister, Chris Hipkins. And he was the Minister for the COVID-19 response. So this is basically also effectively rewarding himself and for the response that Jacinda and he implemented, designed and imposed on their country. As well as being totally unnecessary and pointless because, of course, New Zealand opened up in the end anyway and had large COVID waves of Omicron variant and experienced all of that anyway. They just kept it out for a period of time and the vaccine, the big vaccine push, the whole idea that you could have zero COVID, keeping the borders tightly uh, closed and then vaccinate everybody and then suddenly magically you wouldn't have waves of COVID. That obviously was total fiction. Uh, it was the big myth that was all based on the idea of getting herd immunity from the supposedly highly effective vaccines. But of course, that did not happen. And now in the fourth year of the pandemic, New Zealand is running at 25% excess mortality, 25%. That's huge. And by no means all of it or most of it is COVID. So yet again, we have this trend of mysterious excess death many of them heart-related, of course, as we know, and a lot of suspicion coming down to uh, to the vaccines. Uh, Sceptics have a lot of suspicion about the vaccines, which have known uh, negative effects on the heart, uh, and also, of course, uh, other negative effects from the extreme interventions from COVID. But whatever is behind that highly elevated, that huge number of excess deaths uh, that they're still experiencing now, it hardly speaks to a successful dealing with the pandemic that Jacinda has just been has has just been rewarded for, and Jacinda, of course, quit uh, last year to a large extent in disgrace the failed uh, pandemic response and the and the virus raging. So so even more ridiculous for her to have been rewarded in this way. 
Yeah, just people awarding themselves awards, like when Gary Lineker won that award recently, just total nonsense. And do you remember that video when um, Jacinda Ardern said, you're now allowed to have a slash in your friend's house again? She didn't use that exact wording. But, I mean, that's that's the level of tyranny. You, you, there was a rule where you weren't allowed to urinate in a friend's house and use the bathroom, and she suddenly had to announce in a video, oh, yeah, no, and she smiled as if it was like, oh, I know it's silly. And it, it, that was the level of control in New Zealand. Absolutely. And that's why she got the nickname the Toothy Tyrant, a bit mean perhaps, uh, drawing attention to uh, an aspect of her appearance, but uh, amusing nonetheless. And uh, with that toothy smile, she was a grinning tyrant, wasn't she? And Alison Pearson uh, has pointed out that this is only the latest gong for the the lockdown gang. And in, in this country, in the UK... We've seen Chris Whitty being knighted. We've had uh, Patrick Valance already, a sir, uh, being honoured even more by giving him the order of the, where was it? The Knight Commander of the Order of the Bath, uh, whatever that is. And uh, I think Order of the Bath is what I give my kids every um, every night, but I'm not sure that's what it refers to. And we, of course, we have Dame Jenny Harris, the uh, Deputy Chief Medical Officer, who's now in charge of the U- UK Health Security Agency. We have Dame June Rain of the MHRA, which has miserably failed to have any proper investigation of vaccine side effects and has been uh, cheerfully covering over any potential signals of risks. Sir Gavin Williamson, uh, who shut schools, of course, during the pandemic. And of course, what we don't have are Sir Carl Hennigan and Dame Sinetra Gupta, or any of the true heroes of the pandemic getting any honours or awards, people who actually pointed out the folly of their ways. Instead, they're just, as you said, uh, Nick, they're just rewarding their own. We just have to hope, don't we, that this is just a, a temporary effect of the of the people who implemented these measures still being in power, and what we will have to see, and we hope we will see, is that a new generation uh, in the ne- in the coming years of politicians who weren't personally involved uh, will come and have a proper impartial look at what actually happened and come to proper judgments about these things. Uh, and hopefully look back on all of these honouring and rewarding of the people who brought about all these problems. Let's move on and do this story that I'm sure has no relation to COVID, which is heart failure deaths may hit 44% higher than pre-pandemic. Why is government refusing to investigate? Yeah, so some statistics here uh, pulled out by uh, one of our contributors, uh, Nick Rendell, that heart failure deaths in uh, in the UK and England uh, were 44% higher in May 2023 than they were in 20, May 2020, pre-pandemic. That's hugely uh, increased, and that was one of the worst figures, he admits, uh, but on average, uh, we're looking at around about between 25 and 30% over the past 10 weeks than the pre-pandemic level. However, as Nick points out, this shocking figure uh, is hidden by the fact uh, that the that the expected level has increased since 2020 by about 25 percent, 24, 25 percent. So, um, and that of course is because so many more people are dying of heart failure and other heart conditions since the pandemic. But particularly since 2021, I don't know if you can think of anything significant uh, that happened in 2021, Nick. I, um, I'm just, just, just off the top of my head, you know, there was. Know, a vaccine roller. I don't know. Maybe that maybe that has something to do with it. But because these these elevated death levels in 2021-2022 are now being included in the average, it means that the expected level has increased, and therefore how much we are 
and then what is called the excess, so how much above the expected level is 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 re- is reduced uh, because the expected level has increased, which means it hides it hides that signal. Well, Nick has dug out uh, Nick Rendlesses has dug out the original expected level from before the pandemic and found this worrying. So well, there was a lot of calls about. Obviously, we know that expect that excess deaths, especially from heart related conditions, have been very high in the UK uh, for well eighteen months now, really, or um, or more. And also, it's been pointed out this week, that's also true in many other countries around the world. Uh, and there has been a lot of calls to investigate this, as you would expect. I mean, this is 10, 10%, 20% higher um, than expected levels of deaths, pre-pandemic levels of deaths. It's something that really uh, should be investigated. We're talking about thousands of people uh, dying every month, and more than expected. Uh, and yet, uh, the government has now confirmed that it has no plans to investigate these excess deaths and what's behind them. So it's basically just shutting its eyes, closing its ears, and saying that it doesn't want to know, uh, which when you think about all that the government did to supposedly save one life, if it just saves one life in the pandemic, uh, that's what we were told about lockdowns, wasn't it? That then all these things were supposedly uh, worthwhile, which is always a ridiculous uh, way of approaching uh, public health management. But in any case, that's what they said. It's going to be difficult to get to the bottom of what's going on because without government authorising the investigation, it's hard to get hold of the data we need uh, to get to the bottom of what's going on. So very frustrating, uh, but we see the data here and we just continue to not be able to get to the bottom of what is causing these ongoing, and that's the disturbing thing, ongoing levels of elevated uh, deaths, both in this country and around the world. Yeah, very disturbing, Nick. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it is weird how any certain lives matter, depending on what the ailment is. Um, Should we move on and do a little bit of climate? With Canadian wildfires blamed on climate change, but fire numbers are at historic lows. Yeah, so uh, lots of have been in the news this week about the Canadian wildfires. Uh, it's mainly been in the news because they've been uh, creating so much smoke that's been descending over northeastern uh, America, the United States. So that's made people uh, sit up and pay attention to them. And as you would expect, these fires are being blamed on on climate change, as because supposedly climate change is setting the world on fire. But Chris Morrison, our excellent environment editor, points out that even the United Nations uh, IPCC, the intergovernment governmental panel, intergovernment intergovernmental panel on climate change doesn't agree uh, with that and says that weather is not the most important factor in fire because most fires are started by humans. Uh, Human activities are the dominant driver, um, it observes. But in addition to that, even the IPCC, that's uh, Climate Alarmist Central, doesn't think that weather is driving fires, wildfires. Um, In addition to that, in any case, the data showed that uh, the wildfires in Canada have not been increasing. They've been on a downward trend for a long long time, uh, decades and uh, at historically low levels. So there's just no evidence, as usual, there's just no evidence that these things are even increasing, uh, let alone uh, that they're caused by climate change. So, so, And yet these, these alarmist stories get put out by politicians, by journalists, by the media, um, and, and supposedly we're the ones who are spreading misinformation about, about the climate. Well, clearly that's not the case, is it? All right. Well, as little, I have very little to add when it comes to climate. So I just have to blindly take your word for it, Will, and Chris, but I'm sure you guys are, are absolutely right. And um, pretty good stories. Well, I say good, some awful things happening. The COVID inquiry, Jacinda Arden, but nonetheless, very interesting. And um, thanks, Will. I'm sure we'll catch up with you again next week. Great. Thanks, Nick. Now let's do our occasional section. It's Birdwatch. 
So an interesting bird watch this week was our friend, Dr. Jordan Peterson. I hate to uh, have a pop at Dr. Peterson, obviously, because he's such a, a major asset in our show, but we have to be very, very objective. And there was this tweet that he put up about Mike Pence. It was a very strange tweet. He said, a Pence presidency would restore some normalcy at Mike Pence. That could be a relief. And he just got hammered for this because although we know the good doctor is incredibly smart when it comes to all kinds of areas of life, like, you know, Jungian archetypes and um, psychology and, you know, all sorts of aspects of, 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 of being human. But he's not so good on straight politics, I find. And people were comparing this to his Kavanaugh tweet. Remember, he did that tweet back in the, in the Kavanaugh time of saying that he, he should stand down. And it was thought to be a very odd tweet because it, the Kavanaugh thing was so transparently an attempt by the Democrats to keep the Supreme Court stacked in their favor. Whereas Peterson said, if confirmed to the Supreme Court, Kavanaugh should step down. And people went mental and didn't understand why he was doing that. And it's a similar thing with Pence. No one is thinking a Pence presidency in the world except Jordan Peterson. I mean, you could be the Santos, you could be Trump, you can be RFK, you can even be Biden if you're a big weirdo. But no one is actually thinking Pence. It's absolutely mad. So yeah. his political takes are just sort of centrist dad, sort of not even sort of a, a, a neocon sort of. I don't know where they come from. They're just completely bizarre. What do you think, Toby? Well, I, I think the key to understanding Jordan Peterson is that he feels, I think, uncomfortable in the role of a kind of right-wing combatant in the culture wars. That is not how he sees himself. Um, he sees himself as, you know, a healer, not as a combatant. And um, his new organization, ARC, you know, he, he, ARC are holding this big event in London um, in the autumn. And, you know, uh, and I think it, some people have described it as a kind of, um, you know, uh, anti-woke version of the WEF, that that's what he wants to create. But I think that's a, that, 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 that's slightly misleading again, because that makes it sound like, you know, a move in the culture war. Uh, and I think he wants it to transcend the culture war. I think he sees himself as playing the role of a healer, uh, of someone who can um, bring the two sides together. Um, and, and instead of just attacking the woke, um, he wants to present a positive alternative um, to woke ideology, which he thinks can unite people instead of dividing them. So given that that's how he thinks of himself and given that that is his next big political project, it's understandable that he would want to endorse someone like Pence instead of DeSantis, God forbid, Trump. Interesting. Yeah, at the same time, his tweets have become more and more aggressively sort of culture warish. I mean, I like them, but they're getting more aggressive, if anything. I mean, he, he he's come out more and more. And by joining the Daily Wire, that's a kind of statement that's a sort of more overtly conservative statement than he used to make. So there seems to be sort of contradictions. He can go quite hard on culture war issues, but you're saying he sees himself as this sort of moderate healer. Yeah. I mean, I think yeah. politically, but you, just see, never you see that, you see, you see that contradiction, you know, amongst a lot of people on our side, don't you, that they, that they kind of, that, that, that they kind of oscillate between being quite aggressive culture warriors and then decrying the culture war and wanting to rise above it. Um, yeah, that, that's an absolutely typical um, description, I would have thought, of most of the people on our side. 
Makes sense. I mean, yeah, certainly Twitter is quite an emotive medium. You can just get emotional and tweet something. And he seems, he's talked about trying to come off Twitter and seems as, yeah, so he definitely posts some quite aggressive tweets that he probably regrets. But yeah, I mean, he, he used to be a lefty as a kid. He talks about wanting to be prime minister of Canada. And he, 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 but then he seemed, then he worked for the UN briefly. Some people have cited that. He just seems to be a bit sort of, yeah, sort of a bit centrist and sort of, I don't know about globalists, but he, yeah, on politics, he just seems to never quite get out of that that sort of centrist dad box. Whereas, yeah, on the culture war, he's a lot stronger. It's interesting. Not everyone can be everything, but it always causes outrage when he does these tweets and people go mad. But it's not surprising because he, he keeps doing them, and it's just not his strongest area. And he just doesn't maybe he's not quite finger on the pulse with politics to the same extent that he is with the culture war. I, mean, I think that's probably as simple as that in, in a way. Um, what was your bird watch, Toby? My birdwatch was, I don't know if you saw this story, but um, turns out that um, Mark Zuckerberg um, wants to create a um, sanely run, quote-unquote, alternative to Twitter. Uh, apparently Meta is, is planning to launch a, a kind of safe PG version of Twitter because, um, because I suppose uh, of all the criticism Twitter's attracted under Elon Musk's ownership. Uh, oddly, um, when talking about this, Zuckerberg said that he wanted to create um, a social media platform which would appeal to the Dalai Lama and Oprah Winfrey, um, which is a bit <laughs> odd considering the recent brouhaha about the Dalai Lama play, sort of French kissing a male child. Tongue sucking, that's right, yeah. Um, I like the fact you like it's a male child. If it had been a female... You know, I'd have heard him out. It's, um, don't suck a male child's tongue. That's Toby's line, okay? He is a libertarian, but he does have a line. <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess, uh, well, so Winfrey has 42 million followers on Twitter and the Dalai Lama has 19. So I guess if he can get them to switch and endorse his new safe version of Twitter, that would be quite a good start. Um, I'm surprised but, you he know, said the- Dalai Lama because he is a white nationalist, isn't he, the Dalai Lama? Do you remember when he said that <laughs> Europe was for white people? Uh, yeah, that, yeah. And I suppose that's part of his, yeah, Tibet should be for the Tibetans. Um, yeah, I suppose, yeah, it's a bit odd. I guess it's an attempt maybe to shore up, um, Facebook's, um, falling share price, given the absolute unqualified disaster that is meta. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, I, I, if, 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 if Facebook runs its social media platform or its new social media platform, its version of Twitter, in the same way that it runs Facebook, then I can't see it being very appealing. That's it. It's so interesting. I mean, Jack, formerly Twitter CEO, once is launching Blue Sky, which sounds rubbish. You've already got Mastodon, which is just lefties Mastodoning each other. And it's kind of, they keep attempting to, to counter Twitter, but they can only counter it from their sort of pro-censorship leftist-only position, which, which their bubble that they're stuck in. And Twitter is the one that actually genuinely allows free speech. Of course, it's a massive threat to the EU and all these pro-censorship people. But actually, it's much like the BBC. If the other side could just be a little bit sensible, they could utilize Twitter. And of course, many of them still do. But they could utilize Twitter and say, okay, this is good. This is a free speech platform. But they're so against free speech that it creates an impossible problem for them. It's the only actual liberal platform now, Twitter. But they want leftist authoritarianism. And it's quite interesting. There was a story about Labour when it comes to Twitter and community notes, the community notes thing is so great because Labour ran the story 
that the uh, it has been 36 years since the first black MPs were elected. And then Community Notes fact-checked it and said, no, no, James Townsend was elected in 1767. And then there's a whole list of other uh, black MPs, you know, Peter McLagan in Scotland and all these other ones, John Stewart, there was loads. So it's just completely false, mad falsehood from Labour. And it just got fact-checked into oblivion. And this is the great thing about Twitter. And this is why the EU are terrified of it and the Democrats are terrified of it and the establishment and advertisers are terrified, the woke corporations, because it is just free speech and it will fact-check you with community notes. And this is why all these other leftist platforms will fail unless they just somehow achieve it by pure force. What do you think? Yeah. Um, yeah, it does seem like, you know, the the sane alternative to Twitter, i.e. the kind of... Um, Twitter, but cleansed by sensitivity readers. That's a very crowded space, as you say. It's not as if there aren't kind of many social media platforms trying to sell themselves, you know, as censored left-wing versions of Twitter. And none of them, as you say, have done particularly well. So why Mark Zuckerberg should see, you know, a market opportunity here is baffling. Yeah, it seems incredibly stupid to me. They should just get on, well... Of course, he's going to have to try and rival Twitter. But the way to rival Twitter is just to be even more free speech, but to not go down the gab parlor route where you're perceived as just right wing, but to somehow be, well, perhaps just more, less erratic than Musk, perhaps, or have a better monetization model or something. That would be the way to try and rival it, I think. I suppose that's something, Jack's probably trying to do some of that. He's very into things like blockchain, isn't he? So he'll be trying to perhaps do some of that. But that seems to be where you beat Musk. You beat him on tech. You say... We want a free speech platform and we're going to do the tech better. That's what I would try and do anyway. If I was uh, had a few billion to spend on a social media platform. Um, is, that's pretty much Birdwatch now, I think. Should we move on and do everyone's favourite section, which of course is Peak Woke? I think we both quite like this one, but you very kindly let me um, have it, which is um, the story in The Telegraph that um, Tate Britain, um, it had various. It is have it is organised a programme of events to celebrate uh, Pride Month. Um, uh, it already um, hosted a festival, um, and um, apparently it's employed um, vibe checkers to ensure that um, the gallery is a safe space um, uh, for visitors to these various events to celebrate Pride Month. Um, uh, I'd never heard of this before. Uh, vibe checkers. Uh, it's kind of like, I suppose, really, they're kind of sensitivity readers, but of physical spaces. So I guess they go around when they when they talk about checking the vibe. That's a euphemism for seeing if they can see any traces of dissent from kind of LGBTQ plus dogma in the in the allegedly safe space. And if they detect any sign of dissent, like you know. Uh, a, a rainbow flag from six months ago, as opposed to <laughs> June, um, which which is missing, you know, one of the colours. Then, um, then that's immediately jumped on by the safe space vibe checkers. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Good job exactly. for um, yeah. Good job for Mariana Spring. Maybe. Uh, it, yeah. It just it sounded pure succession to me. Is like Kendall going? Uh, can we have vibe? Do we have vibe checkers? Is Dad coming? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> the, the, the pure succession. <laughs> But Tom Wom's yeah. going. Can we? Is there a is there a vibe uh, checker thing happening? Yeah, that's what I thought. Anyway, ridiculous. <laughs> and yeah, Shiv goes. What? No. 
<laughs> yeah, fucking yeah. vibes, whatever. Fucking anyway, that was Roman. I, I get to, I, we don't go down the succession rabbit hole because not everyone's uh, foolish. People have not have not seen it. I've been missing it pathetically, and I'm having to watch videos about it. But um, maybe we'll do a succession episode. But um, I think you already talked about it on your other podcast, which I haven't listened to. Um, another good one, Toby, was California's AB nine five seven law. So under this new law, a parent could lose custody for not affirming what their child believes about their gender. So if your seven-year-old says, oh, I'm a different gender, and you go, no, you're not, they could actually, they could take your child, I believe. And uh, it's pretty disturbing, to say the least. So I haven't looked at it in loads, but it, it seemed Elon Musk said, this is crazy, and it absolutely is. And is this not, is this a, a bill, um, or is it actually a law, or is it case law established by a particular verdict? Well, you've already gone in beyond my level of detail there. Um, okay. I, I'm, I'm more of a big picture guy, Toby, but um, I can have a look. <laughs> bill, it looks like it's a, I think it's a, it's a new it's a bill. bill. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not yet law. Correct. Right. Good, and, good distinction um, there. This is why we have Toby on the podcast for this kind of <laughs> autism. No, it is important details from a journalist. I'm more of a, you know, a vibe checker. Um, so <laughs> do you want to do a vibe, another a one? A vibe wrecker. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, on. so there was uh, I, my other one was. I mean, there were a couple. I, I, I sort of in passing just wanted to mention the fact that, um, and if you saw this brouhaha about the Criterion Channel, um, which streams classic movies and which people pay, you know, pay for so they can watch classic movies, has censored the French Connection. Um, uh, so there's a scene, I think, in which um, Gene Hackman and Roy Schneider are having kind of they're engaging in you know office bants. They're both New York cops, and one of them uses the N word, and that's been edited, and the N word has gone. Um, pretty extraordinary. I mean, talk about messing with a masterpiece. I mean, I thought it was bad enough when they came for PG Woodhouse, but the French Connection is nothing sacred. It's one of my right. favorite movies. So give yeah. us our N words back. Maybe that's an opportunity <laughs> there for business, Toby. N-word <laughs> classics. All your favorite movies with the N-words yeah, left yeah. in. <laughs> but you, you thought you wouldn't have to campaign for that. Can't that just happen organically? You know, just don't mess with, you know, um, uh, classic movies. They may have been of their time, but, you know, I'm sure that is an authentic representation of what New York kind of, you know, drug cops, the kind of banter they engaged with, you know in the police station back in the 70s. Well, uh, well this is very We much don't like... have to change things, so they behave more like us. I mean, it's stupid. No, that, anyway. that was the... We did a piece about that on Headliners about Bridgerton, where some people are now complaining, even on the sort of more woke side, they're saying, hang on, you want to put posh black people in Bridgerton, and that erases the struggle of slavery and of sort of black people's struggle, because you're suggesting we were already there amongst the aristocracy, which we weren't. So it's come full circle now. It, you know, if they take out the N-word there, aren't they undermining the struggle against racism? Yes, and it's part of the one of the kind of weird contradictions within the woke movement, which is, on the one hand, you know, they want to portray the very recent past as a kind of cesspit of racism and colonialism and sexism and homophobia and exploitation of all kinds in which this kind of evil clique of rich upper class white supremacists kind of made everyone else suffer you know the past was a cesspit a moral cesspit and we're still living with its legacy and we need to do whatever we can to protect ourselves from it 
that's that's position one. And position two is let's change the past to make it to, to cleanse it of all these sins and pretend it was a much nicer, less racist, more humane, less homophobic place than it really was. So let's tear down statues to pretend that these people never existed. Let's cast black people in historical dramas. Let's excise the n-word being used in classic 70s films and pretend that they didn't use the n-word back then so it's this weird contradiction of of wanting to portray the past as this evil hellhole and at the same time pretend it was a kind of woke utopia not unlike today it was just mad anyway um i'll get on to my um my second um my second uh peak woke for this week which is i don't know if you saw this but the actor alan cumming gay Scottish actor. Um, He recently said that um, more white people should see black theatre. And uh, and it turns out he's helped produce a musical called A Strange Loop, uh, which is about, quote, a black queer writer writing a musical about a black queer writer writing a musical about a black queer writer. Um, it doesn't, it doesn't immediately great. grab me as something I'm going to give up my, spend 50 pounds, give up my Friday night to see. But um, yeah, postmodern wokeness. He wants more white people to go and see this play, which is a bit weird. Is he saying there are too many black people in the audience at the moment? Um, I want more white people in the audience. Anyway, I think perhaps he just probably wants some people in the audience, and they're probably very terrified if he's put money into this thing that he's going to lose his shirt. But um, I don't know if you Text saw, but he... White uh, supremacy. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, he... Um, he 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 recently gave back his OBE, so he was awarded an OBE uh, in two thousand nine uh, for his activism for equal rights for the gay and lesbian community. Uh, but he's now belatedly discovered that the E in OBE stands for Empire. The Empire is toxic, so he's given it back. I think he gave it back after the death of the Queen. Apparently, this 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 brought home to him that the E in OBE stood for Empire. So he's now washed his hands of it, given it back. Yeah, he's I remember that idiot. story. It was disgusting and awful. Um, my peak. Well, I just have one more, which is Activision has removed Nick Merck's Call of Duty skin from sale after the streamer made an anti-LGBT blah, 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 plus comment. So. This guy, Nick Merckx, who has 2 million followers on Twitter, and it is basically a gaming streamer. So this is just interesting because Wokeness has gone into gaming. And um, all he did was reply to a tweet about uh, protesters and Pride Month and stuff. And he just said they should leave little children alone, which is, I think, criticism a lot of people have. Like, okay, you can have gay pride, but why is it? Why is there children involved? You know, with all these things, the drag story time and all this. And uh, he said that's the real issue. And so they removed this skin that you could buy in the game and so you can't buy his thing anymore. And then what's interesting is loads of other streamers are then deleting their stuff and saying, no, I don't want my skins and other sort of in-game products to be sold either. And he hasn't deleted the tweet. And so another streamers are sticking with him in solidarity. So that's quite interesting. Yeah. Um, I, do you think that um, the concept of, of being able to buy a new skin for your avatar in a video game is kind of partly responsible for the rise in transgenderism amongst kind of the youth. Because the, if, if you can buy a new skin, including the skin of someone of the opposite sex, if you can change identities so easily in Call of Duty um, and other video games, maybe people imagine that they can kind of take that concept into their real lives as well. Yeah, that's very possible. And, and, and in general, the sort of digitalization of everything and, and gaming being such a big thing I suppose is part of that. And we've just seen that new headset reveal, isn't it? Is it the Apple thing where you can just stick the 
the goggles on and go fully into the matrix and you'll just be living in VR the whole time you've seen that. So that's, yeah. that's a big thing. So yes, soon people are going to want to live entirely in a sort of meta universe, maybe not run by actual Zuckerberg since he's balls it up. And they'll naturally think they can change everything. And they will be able to change everything digitally. But when you try and do it with the actual good old analog body, doesn't go so well generally, does it? Good point. Yeah, I mean, I'd certainly, if, if, um, if, if, if transgenderism kind of, you know, morphs into a wholly virtual phenomenon, in which people get top surgery and bottom surgery and experiment with different genders and different sexual personas in an avert in the virtual realm. I mean, I can't see why anyone. I certainly wouldn't have any objection to that. I mean, there's no real risk there, is there? Um, I, I, st- I uh, still that's would be fine. Would you? Uh, I'd be, yeah, be just inherently just reactionary against it, just even if it's digital. Yeah. <laughs> You're not li- As a libertarian, I think, provided it harms no one, then um, uh, then it's absolutely fine. Fair enough. Go, uh, go mad, I'd say. I haven't really thought it through. Um, Toby, you've pretty much got to go in zero minutes. Do you want me to read a quick review? Let's have a quick review. Um, this one's good. Excellent. This is from Dave Stacy. Excellent. Five stars. A very listenable podcast. Good chemistry between fully awake Nick and workaholic Toby, who will get the light bulb moment one day. Just a shame Dr. Jordan Peterson isn't on more often. No, he can sometimes only make the live events, but maybe we'll bring him back on a recording. And um, anyway, and another great one here would give you five stars, would give you six if I could keep up the good work. And um, yeah, the loads of, oh, here's one more. Very enjoyable with a host of topics not found anywhere else. Nick the Big Dog Dixon is a great presenter who isn't afraid to get animated. The balance comes from Toby with his relaxed and soothing manner. A great combo of presenting skills. I very much look forward to hearing you both keep up the excellent work. So there you go, Toby. They're nice about both of us. How about that? Yeah, but I, uh, the implication was I'm Ernie Wise to your Eric Walker. You still didn't like it. I thought the implication was you're just sort of super smooth and knowledgeable. I mean, I don't know what animated uh, but, means, or maybe I just get worked up. Uh, yeah, no, I, you, I think you I get think animated. We, both, we, we, we both get quite animated. Um, but yeah, no, I, both nice reviews. I'm you found the negative. Um, but thank you for all your nice reviews. They were pretty good ones. I mean, we've got loads of great ones here. So it's at 4.8 that we need to get it back to 4.9. But anyway... Toby, you've got to go. Anything you want to quickly plug? Especially Just, not things um, in the past. Yeah, we've got um, we've got uh, uh, an event coming up that the Free Speech Union um, is uh, organising. It's a book party, a book launch for Sharon Davis, the um, uh, Olympic swimmer, um, who's been a great um, champion of sex-based women's rights in women's sports. She's written a book called Unfair Play, The Battle for Women's Sports. And we are hosting the book party at a central London location on Wednesday, the 5th of July. And, um, members of the public can can buy tickets so uh, if you want to find out more about that go to the free speech union's website freespeechunion.org click on events and you should be able to click through and buy a ticket there okay and i would just urge you to go to my other podcast the current thing as well as the weekly skeptic because we have an incredible array of guests we've just had andrew doyle people loving that episode it's crushing it on youtube and on audio before that we had lord frost former chief brexit negotiator before that we had andrew lawrence which was an excellent episode and we've had Andrew Bridgen, Carl Benjamin, so many people, Jamie Franklin, people love that episode. So make sure you go and listen to the current thing on all audio platforms and most of them are on YouTube as well as the Weekly Skeptic. But Toby, if you, if you, is, that, is that everything? You happy? Happy. All right, good luck with your event. And until next week, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. <laughs> <laughs>